Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director of the Center for Understanding and Conflict, and I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And I'm thrilled that my guest today is my partner, Shara Goldfarb. She uh, is an experienced family law attorney and mediator who is dedicated to helping clients divorce with dignity. For the past 20 years, she's focused her practice exclusively on divorce, parenting plans, parental alienation cases, complex financial issues and high net worth cases, prenuptial and postnuptial agreements, domestic violence, and reproductive law. She's a certified divorce financial analyst and is an active member of the Attorney for the Child Panel for the Appellate Division Second Department and the Matrimonial and Family Law Mediation Panel for the Ninth Judicial District. Welcome, Shara. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here. And I should say welcome back because you've been our guest before. Uh, but this time we're going to talk about pre-divorce financial considerations and things that people should be thinking about before they get divorced in, in order to get ready for divorce. But these are actually also issues that people need to be thinking about throughout the divorce. So what are some of the things that financially speaking, Shara, people can do to get ready or to look around to educate themselves on before they come in to, and file for divorce? Yes, yeah, so I can't stress enough how important this stage is, the gathering of information stage prior to even initiating divorce proceedings if possible. By gathering this type of information, and I'll go through the information that needs to be gathered, a person can save a lot of money on legal fees trying to get this information. Um, and also, by getting this information, a person who's going through a divorce will feel much less anxiety having this information and having a handle on their finances prior to initiating a divorce proceeding. Sometimes it's not possible. And then we do what we need to do. But if it is possible, it is definitely worth doing. So some of these financial documents that need to be gathered, I would say tax returns for the past five years, bank statements for as long as you can get them. Um, I would, you know, contact the bank and, and see how long they have records for that are easy to retrieve and uh, get bank statements for every bank account that, you know, the person who's uh, divorcing has an interest in or is, is on that bank account. That's So your, that person's bank account statements um, or joint statements. Loan information. People forget to get loan information. Uh, mortgage statements, car loans, home equity loans, any other type of loans that either party has in their name retirement account statements, investment account statements, employment agreements for you and your spouse, social security statements, credit reports, all of these things to just compile 
and go back a few years will give you and your attorney a really good sense of the financial picture of your family. So I think that it is really worth trying to gather as much of this as possible prior to even speaking about a divorce with your spouse, if that's possible. If the divorce was brought up by your spouse, even then it is a good time while, you know, while you can to just gather as much information as possible. So that's really great information. And I know that a lot of our clients come in and sometimes they're not the person who's in the relationship, in the marriage relationship, who's been responsible for the finances. Oftentimes they don't realize they've signed tax returns and because of electronic filing, maybe they actually haven't done that. And so one thing that I think is really important for people to know is that if an accountant has represented the couple in filing the tax returns, that accountant is both people's accountant by law and the tax returns can be obtained from the accountant just by asking. They have to give it to you. I think that's yes. important for them to know, right? And also bank statements. Banks generally hold on to statements for seven years and it's really hard to go beyond that. Do you think people really need seven years of bank statements? I think it depends. In some cases, I would say yes. And I would say that you know, during this time, it's easy. It's easy to get. So I would say get as much as you can in the upfront, you know, before lawyers are involved, before you're incurring fees to get this stuff. If it's not hard, if it takes, you know, writing an authorization to the bank, sending an email, walking to your bank branch and filling out a request, it is worth it, I think, to even go back to seven years, even though you, you probably won't need the seven years. You probably will just need three years, but in some situations, there might be a reason to go back seven years to see, to check about a specific transaction that is going to be an issue in the divorce. And I can imagine that there are people, Shara, listening to this thinking, oh my God, that is just so overwhelming. And so is it really essential that this all happen before they call a lawyer? Is this something that can happen early on in the lawyer-client relationship, especially if there isn't an urgency? And what if they can't do it? What should they do? Yes. So generally, people who hire a lawyer do not have all of this information in the upfront. That is true. And my advice is if you're listening to this and you can get it, you should. But generally, it is not done. And generally, if you're participating, it depends what type of process you choose and what type of process is even is the right process for you and your spouse. For example, if you are, if you and your spouse have decided to do a collaborative divorce, this is not as important because in a collaborative divorce, both parties make a commitment to produce all relevant financial documents, and there's not going to be a collaborative divorce if, if either spouse is not interested in full, full disclosure. If you're in an adversarial process like a litigation, you know, you might be in that process because one spouse is not forthcoming with information. 
And that's the situation where one spouse will not be forthcoming with the information, that it's even more critical to try to get this information to save yourself money on subpoenas and legal fees when you're trying to get this information. So it's not always in a more amicable divorce, in a collaborative divorce, in a, then it might not be necessary to do all this work in the upfront. But if you have a spouse who's, who's going to be withholding information, then it, it is definitely advisable to get as much information as possible. So if I'm understanding you, what you're saying is that it can be super helpful, it can streamline the process and therefore make it less expensive with in terms of legal fees and maybe other professional fees if you can get the information as much information up front as possible but if you can't not to panic because a there are ways that lawyers can get information that people might not be able to with the use of subpoenas and also mm-hmm. that if you're in a situation where you just can't get it we have other ways of getting it so no panicking should happen but it would be easier and cheaper, therefore, to be able to get the information up front. Yes, that's exactly right. And um, in some situations, it really might not be possible to get this information in advance. And that's what lawyers are for. You know, we do have a lot of tools to get this information. It just, you know, would be a little more costly or a lot more costly than if somebody was able to get this information on their own. I'm Katherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM in Westchester County every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, bringing you information and thoughtful dialogue you need to divorce with dignity. And we're also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm talking today with Shara Goldfarb about pre-divorce financial considerations and what people should think about, what information they should gather when they are thinking about getting divorced or preparing to get divorced. And Shara, if if people are thinking about the process of divorce, maybe divorcing, is there anything that they should do differently in terms of the way they treat their own bank accounts and credit cards? Well, I would say that if you're contemplating divorce, you do have to think about legal fees and how you're going to be able to finance the divorce. Of course, the easiest way to go about this is if you and your spouse can come to some agreement on how legal fees will be paid for, or at least the initial retainers for attorneys. But again, that might not be possible. If one party is in a situation where that's not possible, then it is really important to think about access to funds in order to get an attorney to be able to represent you in the divorce. So that's one thing I would start to think about. And then otherwise, my general advice is that you need to be reasonable. So a person who's contemplating divorce would not want to spend a lot more than they usually would just because they're getting a divorce or do anything really, really differently than normal because you want to be reasonable, conserve resources. Divorce is expensive, so you can adequately protect yourself, hire the right lawyer, and get the proper advice long-term for your divorce. 
So, you know, I've heard people say over the years, no, you should spend as much as you possibly can because you're spending 50 cent dollars. What do you think about that? I think that's terrible, terrible advice. First and foremost, you have to think about your family, right? You have to think about your family. Divorce, again, can be expensive. It's a very difficult emotional time. And you want to try to conserve your resources so you can, again, you know, hire the right professionals, get the right team together so you can get divorced in a way that will have less of a draining financial impact on your family. Um, you want to get the right professionals involved. So I would say that you want to always be reasonable and uh, not spend more than you were spending before just to get back at your spouse. That is just terrible advice. Thank you. Uh, I think that really makes a lot of sense. I agree with you that spending a lot of money just because you're going to have to split that money anyway is short-sighted. It, it is short-sighted in the extreme. And if you care about sending your children to college or having security in your retirement, it's probably something you don't want to do. So moving, Cheryl Goldfarb, to another topic, which is this idea of separate property. Can you describe for our listeners, and I think this is a really confusing topic, what is separate property, what is marital property, and why does it matter? Yes, of course. So marital property is any property acquired during the marriage that is, does not fall in one of these exceptions that are separate property. Now, anything acquired during the marriage, like income, for example, income that either party earns, is marital property. If there was money that one party came into the marriage with, so that was acquired prior to the marriage, that would be considered separate property. But even that, there are exceptions to that rule because separate property that was from prior to the marriage can become marital property if it is commingled with marital property or if there's an intention on the spouse with the separate property to convert that to marital property or to give a gift to the other spouse. And there are other exceptions to marital property, and that is a, a gift given by a third party to one of the uh, spouses in a marriage. That would be separate property. But again, you do need to be careful because even if you're given a gift by a third party and that's your separate property, and then you deposit that gift into a joint bank account, that can be converted to marital property because that might show an intent to gift that party to your spouse, an inheritance. When you, show an, when you say show an intent, even if it's not intended, right? So that, that's the thing I think is really confusing for people is that even if you don't intend it, it can be interpreted as showing an intent. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. Just the act of depositing the money into a joint account that is seen by courts as an intent to make that separate property both of yours. So yes, so that, so even if you personally did not intend to gift that property, it is seen 
as intended to be for the family or the couple. Yeah. And so what difference does it make if it's, if it's separate or marital? So marital property um, under New York law is subject to equitable division. And depending on the particulars of a case, uh, equitable distribution of marital property can mean a 50-50 division of the marital property, or it can mean something less than that or different than that, uh, depending on the factors. One of the main factors is how long you've been married. Um, In a very long marriage, the presumption is, well, the presumption in a long marriage is that equitable distribution is a 50-50 division absent other factors. So uh, marital property is subject to equitable uh, division and or distribution and separate property is not. So if there was money that was acquired prior to the marriage, a person keeps it in a separate bank account, doesn't touch it, and that money is still there when the parties are getting divorced, that would be clearly separate property that would not be subject to equitable distribution. So that would be that party's separate property, and it would not be part of the marital pot to be distributed. So what you're saying is that when people are getting divorced, marital property is what is divided in the divorce, but separate property Mm -hmm. isn't. And and so that someone who is able to maintain separate property separate will end up just being able to keep that property on the other side of the divorce in addition to his or her share of the marital assets. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And that ties back to our conversation in the beginning of, of our conversation when we were talking about what records to collect. If a person is contemplating divorce and they recall that they had either a gift or money from prior to the marriage or an inheritance, it is so important to locate all of that documentation because that documentation is what's necessary to prove that that property was separate property and not marital property that's subject to equitable distribution. I'm Catherine Miller. You're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30. And we're also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm talking today with Shara Goldfarb, a partner at the Miller Law Group, about finances and divorce and getting ready to get divorced with your finances. And Shara, if people are interested in learning more about this topic or getting in touch with you or learning more about you, how can they do that? So I could be reached by email is the best way to get in touch with me. Uh, My email is Shara, S-H-A-R-A, at Miller-Law.com. And our website is Miller-Law.com, where there is valuable information about our firm. Great. That's super. And so what about handling credit card debt in in divorce. You know, we often talk about dividing up of assets, but how is credit card debt, mortgage debt, and other kinds of school loan debt, those kinds of things handled in divorce? And I realize I'm throwing a whole bunch of categories into this one question, so feel free to separate it out. Yeah, so generally, just like assets, debt acquired during the marriage 
is marital debt subject to equitable division. So if one party, for example, went to school during the marriage and took out a loan, that would be considered a marital debt because it was done during the marriage. If one party had student loans from prior to the marriage, that would be considered separate debt. And that would be on, you know, the party whose loan it was to pay that back on their own if they still had that debt upon a divorce. Credit card debt is uh, treated the same way. Credit card debt acquired during the marriage is marital debt. Now, of course, there are exceptions to every rule. And, for example, if one party incurred a lot of credit card debt on uh, something that was not that the other party didn't know about and was not considered marital, like an example that I can think of is an extramarital affair. So if one party charged on a credit card, you know, for hotels and dinners to go out with her boyfriend, in that case, that would not be considered marital debt, even though it was incurred during the marriage, because that would be considered a non-family, non-marital purpose. So there's exceptions to any rule, but generally the rule is if it was acquired during the marriage, if the debt was acquired during the marriage, it's marital and it's subject to equitable division. So meaning that it would be divided between the former spouses in terms of paying it off. Yes, exactly. And what about things like mortgages? and home equity lines of credit. Yes, I mean, that would be treated the same way. So a mortgage goes with the asset. So basically what we would do is figure out if there's a house with a mortgage and a home equity line of credit, we figure out how much equity does the couple own. It doesn't matter if the mortgage is in one party's name and not the other. What matters is, was this debt that was acquired during the marriage, is it attached to an asset that was acquired during the marriage? Uh, Generally, when the answer is yes, we figure out how much equity is in the asset. So we take the value of the asset, we subtract what's left on the mortgage and the home equity line, if there is one, and we figure out that that's the equity that the parties own together. And if there's going to be a buyout of the house, for example, that's how we determine the buyout price. And assuming that it was an asset that was acquired during the marriage, the buyout price might, you know, would usually be 50% of the equity, assuming it was, you know, fully marital and there were no separate property credits. I'm making a lot of assumptions just to simplify here. Sure. It sounds really, really complicated. Should people try to figure this out on their own or should they talk to a lawyer about it, do you think? So I would say definitely speak with a lawyer and not only a lawyer. I think it's really, it would be great in in a case where there are a lot of assets, a high net worth case. It's really valuable too to have a CDFA on your team. So an attorney and a CDFA, which is a certified divorce financial analyst who can focus on the tax implications of the division um, and focus on 
expenses to determine the support, the appropriate level of support in a case. Um, I think it's really important to get a really good team together. Um, so a lawyer, a, a good lawyer, is an essential part of the team, and a CDFA could be very a very useful member of the team also. I think that's really important. I think there's so much what you're saying, Cheryl Goldfarb, so much about the divorce financial situation and, and division of assets, separate property and marital property. It really makes sense to get some good advice early on. Thank you so much for being yes. my guest on Divorce Dialogue. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate being here.